Welcome listeners. I'm your host, Connie Bell, and you're listening to Groundings, episode three. We have a great show lineup. Our guest today is Professor Carolyn Cooper. For those of you who don't know who Carolyn Cooper is, she is a renowned professor of cultural studies in the Caribbean and recently was the professor of cultural studies at the University of the West Indies. Carolyn has written extensively on dance hall and Jamaican orality more broadly. We have invited her here to speak as she will be a guest on our panel at our next event on Sunday, March the 25th at Rich Mix alongside other guests and practitioners who will be speaking and analyzing the dance hall culture as a space for archiving culture in an embodied way. It's quite a topic because we're going to be looking at how Pan-Africanism <laughs> feeds in to that context. And we will also be looking at how spirituality feeds into that context and how we bring it all together in the story of the African. But it's a pleasure to be talking to you guys about this very important subject. First, I would like to refer back to an ideal that you had put forward at your talk in Brixton um, last year when you came to speak. And um, you spoke about this terminology called the Anansi Syndrome. And you spoke about it as something strategic pertaining to the survival of oppressed people. Could you expand on this, please? Yes, well, in Jamaica, Anansi represents the trickster. And that trickster figure is one that appears throughout the African diaspora. It originated on the continent of Africa and it came across the Atlantic in various forms, Eshu, Elegbara, you know, that, that cunning figure who is both male and female, one foot in this world, one foot in the other world, um, with the capacity to use tricks to survive. And in Jamaica, Anansi is seen largely as something negative because we associate the cunning of Anansi with somewhat immoral behavior, you know, selfishness. A classic Anansi story is one with Anansi wanting to have all of the common sense in the world for himself. So he goes around and he collects common sense and he has all of it in this huge barrel. And he's gonna climb a tree, a tall tree, to get up to the top to hide the barrel so that nobody else will have access to common sense. Now he ties the barrel on his belly and as he tries to climb, the barrel, you know, the, the, the calabash, it's really a calabash, gets in the way. And so he can't climb very fast or very far. And a little girl who is on the ground looks up and sees him and says, but hey, Anansi, why don't you put the calabash on your back? And that way you'll be able to climb up easily. And Anansi is so vexed that the little girl has more common sense than him. But he goes all the way to the top of the tree and flings the calabash to the ground and it smashes and calabash just scatters back to all corners of the earth, you know? So that's the side of Anansi where we see him 
as a trickster trying to manipulate and control and so on. But there's another side of a Nancy, the cunning to survive, you know, um, and the, the strategies that particularly enslaved people had to use playing fool to catch wise, using cunning, disguise, trickery to survive in circumstances where you were not allowed the freedom to be um, human and you had to sometimes pretend not to have sense in order to get one up on your oppressor. And a good example of this is a story I found in a book edited by the historian Gilbert Asofsky. It's called Putting on Old Massa and that uh, metaphor of putting on Old Massa, sort of getting one over on Massa. And it's a story of an enslaved man, Pompey, who is having a conversation with his so-called master. And the master is getting ready to, you know, sort of very pompously all dressed up. And he said, I'm Pompey, how do I look? And he said, fine, master. Great. And he said, what do you mean? I said, he said, you look just like a lion, master. And the master says to him, a lion, Pompey, where have you seen a lion? And he said, I saw one um you know in the uh, down in one of the fields and he said but Pompey that wasn't a, a lion that was a jackass and Pompey said oh master he looked just like you you know <laughs> so that trickery um Pompey then uh, you know the master says oh Pompey you know he's such a he's such an idiot you know kind of thing but then Pompey has the last laugh because he has mocked the, the, the so-called master calling him a jackass and the master is thinking oh what a stupid fellow and he doesn't realize that Pompey is putting him on having a laugh at his expense so that tricksterism that Anansi syndrome is what I'm suggesting is both positive and negative you know and so and so it's a strategy survival strategy survival strategy that people who are disempowered use to to affirm their humanity okay thanks for that carolyn so greetings everybody this is etienne i know you're missing me from uh, the last couple of weeks so yeah i'm here as well with connie sitting here talking to carolyn cooper very very happy to have you here so just picking up um on what you'd said about a nancy syndrome you speak about it um it's almost as if it's in the past tense um in terms of historically oppressed people and I'm thinking about your book, Noises in the Blood, and this idea of some kind of ancestral transmission of behaviours and ideas. Um, you know, something that's got genetic and epigenetic aspects to it. Would you say that the syndrome manifests itself um, amongst contemporary African heritage populations, or is it something that is kind of consigned to this colonial um, past, you know? Yes, well, Anansi's stories were a part of my childhood. That's in the 50s, you know, that's um, half a century ago. Now, I don't know that children are getting Anansi's stories in the same way that we used to get them passed down in the evenings when you would gather around. In my early childhood, we didn't have television. Television didn't come to Jamaica until the 60s, so... You know, and then we had black and white TV and then finally we got color. So a lot of the entertainment that was done, especially in rural Jamaica, I grew up in Kingston, but in rural Jamaica, storytelling was entertainment. And so 
you would have storytelling at home, whether it's your mother or your grandmother or, you know, some, some other adult telling you these stories. And then you would learn that there would be songs to go with the, the stories because Nancy would sing and there would be dances and it was total theater. So a lot of knowledge about how to behave, what the value system in the society is. That information will be transmitted orally in the body and then it will become part of almost part of your DNA you could say and when I was working on my first book which I call Noises in the Blood I found this beautiful quote in a novel by Vic Reed a novel called Nanny Town and again Nanny Town is a novel in which Vic Reed is reminding us of that history of rebellion resistance the anti-colonial um resilience of a nanny the queen queen mother of the maroons and um in that um novel there's a young boy who is learning to be a griot and he says that kishi the griot says to be a griot you must have no fear when a knowledge comes to you like an echo in the bone or a noise in the blood and that idea of knowledge being passed down in the bone, in the blood, suggests the power of the oral tradition. That, you know, it's something that you hear and feel and it becomes part of your identity. So these Anansi stories get passed down, as I said, I'm not sure how many of them are still being told um, who is learning because, you know, they, um, you know, the, the tablet has really overtaken all the other entertainment devices that we have, you know, and I think people need to start telling these Anansi stories in a new medium. Well, the tablet may be carrying the swing right now, but I would say that these stories are being passed down in very embodied ways. Just like in our forthcoming Levels program, for example, which is looking at how the stories like these are passed on through movement and through dance. And in the popular music. Yes, so that a lot of the DJs, the dance hall DJs, are passing down information, insights, and, you know, a lot of young people are listening to the music, and that is where they're getting a lot of their information from. And we have to remember that these DJs themselves, some of them would have heard these stories and they show up in their lyrics. Um, celebrating the um, spirit of survival. Um, when Buja Banton sings, it's not an easy road, you know, and it uses a lot of proverbs and the wisdom, the collective wisdom that is handed down people learn these 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 knowledges um and what i found interesting in that vic reed um quote is that knowledge is seen you know that you could add up when, when a knowledge comes to you you know it's just not not just knowledge um as a collective kind of known but it's a knowledge you get a knowledge here you get another knowledge there and all of these knowledges add up you know they accumulate into a worldview and a value system that makes sense to you and gives meaning to your life. So, do you have to hear the stories at all? I mean, can we just say that because we're part of a particular culture, 
um, these stories are kind of embedded in our consciousness and we all kind of perform them subconsciously as we go about our daily lives. Well, you see, I think you have to hear the stories for them to have that lived meaning. But you see, sometimes we have information and we're not even conscious of how we got it. You know, we may not have listened to a story, but somehow in conversations with people, you pick up a proverb, you pick up a couple sentences, you pick up some stories which may not systematically teach you about the culture, but almost intuitively, you pick up what it is that you're supposed to learn. But I think what is missing now is a kind of systematic way of teaching children about their culture, about their identity, and the Anansi stories and the ring games and, you know, all of the things that we used to play, the games we used to play as children, um, help to give us a sense of a Jamaican identity. But now we're getting so much of our popular culture from the world and imported and, you know, that there's a kind of struggle to hold on to the quote-unquote authentic Jamaican culture because in a way that is now seen as kind of backward and old-fashioned. So I think we really have to make a conscious effort to teach these stories. Although I agree with you, Etienne, that sometimes, you know, because you say it's in the blood, it's in the, it's in the bone, it suggests that it's something that can be spontaneously accessed. But I think we need to recognize that even the oral tradition has to be taught. You know, you think of the role of the griot in West Africa, the, the, you know, the teller of the history and the praise singer. It's a learning that has to take place where you, you learn the stories that you're going to tell. Okay. So thinking about the Jamaican context, would you consider Rastafari something that uh, may have potentially provided that structured transmission within the society, that source of information about the culture and identity of the people? Rastafari don't like to consider themselves an ism. That's the first thing. Or a liberty. And so I don't think that Rasta would think of their way of life as a religion that you're going to teach in a kind of systematic way. Yes, there are certain principles that you um, live by, but I think for Rasta, these values are seen as more organic in the way that they approach food and, you know, idle liberty. It's about um, diet and it's about health and it's about well-being. So, you know, I don't know that you can get a codified Rastafari religious package that you can now just teach, you know. But I believe that Rasta really um, has some very important lessons to teach us about how we must flex in the world. Okay. So how, in your view, Carlin, do you think the culture, that order and structure within the culture should be preserved? Well, what I would say is that culture changes, you know, that is the first thing. 
that even though I'm complaining about the children not getting these stories in a systematic way, uh, perhaps is all I'm acknowledging is the inevitable transformations that take place in societies where, you know, there's a lot of um, movement of people and, you know, Caribbean people particularly, you know, we tend to move all over the world and we're not um, stuck in one place and there are many influences that have impacted on the music if we even think about it, that sometimes Jamaicans get very upset and they say people thief the music and gone with it. But reggae is a hybrid music. It has elements from all over. Um, you know, scout, R&B and jazz. And so it, these are all musics of the African diaspora, which ultimately come from the continent. And so change is inevitable. So yes, I agree that, um, you know, we need to pay attention to the culture so that it doesn't get lost. But we also have to recognize that that process of loss is also a process of rediscovery, of transformation, of creating something new. Okay, so picking up on what we were talking about off air, um, we're talking about your recent trip to Ghana and you're talking about Pan-Africanism and I think music. And I also, I suppose, I'm thinking about Rasta and this idea of um, African heritage that Rasta communicates. I'd like to ask you, are you a Pan-Africanist? And if so, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for you? <laughs> well, I would say I am Pan-Africanist, not necessarily as a political movement in that sense of you know what we had in the 1950s the 40s the struggle to create a sense of african empowerment particularly on the continent as a response to colonialism but i would say that my pan-africanism is really a recognition of the cultural traditions that connect us from the continent to the diaspora and looking for example at music as one of the ways in which um, this consciousness is expressed. I was at the University of Ghana, Legon last week and I was interviewed by a very bright young professor at the Institute of um, African Studies in BG, Weihot. And she asked me to speak about Pan-Africanism in reggae and dance hall. And I, some of the songs I asked her to play Peter Tosh, African. Don't care where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. You know, for me, that is Pan Africanism in reggae. We have, you know, no matter your complexion, we have, have the identity of an African where um, Tosh is suggesting that global African identity is something that is manifested in particular cultural traditions that people share, no matter where on the world, where in the world they are born. You know that these values are transmitted. We also looked at Bujobanta and Still I'm Laid to Rest, where he talks about traveling across the continent and just seeing the beauty of the land and recognizing that oh, people keep talking about the West being so superior to the East, which is what he is using to describe the continent, the non-West, and saying that, but there's beauty here that, you know, that we need to reclaim. And of course, steel pulse, rally around the red 
gold, black and green, you know, garvism, the push for reclamation of the African continent, Africa for Africans at home and abroad. And these are the Pan-Africanist values that you see in the popular music, where the reggae singers and the dancehall DJs are asking black people to reconsider what identity they want to claim. And Rasta, again, is a very important aspect of this sense of self that, you know, this global African consciousness call for reparations and repatriation. Okay, so you mentioned dancehall, and I think many people would not necessarily make that connection between dancehall, um, especially in its contemporary form, and this idea, any ideas of global black solidarity or black liberation. So can you expand a little bit on how you see Pan-Africanism within dancehall culture? Yeah, well, again, you see, many of the dancehall DJs would not necessarily call themselves Pan-Africanist, but um, even a contested figure like Vibes Cartel, you know, even though Cartel has been demonized for the murderous lyrics and the sort of the negativity of many of his songs. Cartel has lyrics in which he's affirming that um, we're in a moment of post-colonialism, anti-colonialism, where we must claim the power to transform our societies so that poor people can live with dignity. And in a way, this is at the root of Pan-Africanism, the idea that Africans at home and abroad have suffered the trauma of colonialism and before that, enslavement and the need for us to to, to claim a space to express power. And I think this is why a movie like Black Panther has had such such a such an impact across the black world because people want Wakanda, you know, they want a sense of an Africa that they can feel is a continent of power, technological sophistication, um, unimaginable material and mineral wealth and there's the sense in which that we're looking for something too that we can rally around um red gold black and green steel for say but to rally around the idea of black people having power and having agency and not simply being victims you know in a world where um white people dominate and in a very selfish kind of way I think the core of Pan-Africanism is liberation, political liberation, but also cultural and psychological. Mm. So thinking about this kind of Pan-African ideal, what, what are the kind of structures, the kind of order that you feel must be put in place? for this to become a reality. I am very cautious around the structure and the rules and the laws because these sometimes can inhibit creativity. And, um, you know, you want to have a sense of an orderly society in which people can feel safe at night and so on. And don't feel that if you step out your door, you're at risk of being murdered and so on. So yes, you want some kind of structure, some 
sense of um, that there's a moral compass that is guiding people's behavior in the everyday. But I don't want to make it any more specific than that, you know? So, Carlin, the reason I ask about structure is because you mentioned a quote during your last trip to the UK about the idea of understanding a cultural superstructure. A quote by Sir Henry Foote, I believe. Yes, yeah, so Hugh, Hugh Foote. Hugh, yes, was one of the governors, governors of Jamaica, the 1850s. What it is, is that he was writing a foreword to this book by Edith Clark, the anthropologist, my mother who fathered me. And he was talking about, you know, being a colonial administrator in Jamaica and recognizing the disparity between the elite cotched up in Kingston and the masses of the people in rural Jamaica. The values of those people being so different from that of the um, elite and the way in which the elite make policy and set up programs, development programs, without even understanding the people that they're supposed to be quote unquote developing. And he even talked about language. That as an outsider, he could recognize that people were speaking in a language that was not English. He recognized that it needed to be respected. And he was really, for a colonial administrator, I thought he was particularly sensitive to the need to understand the people, understand the society, understand the culture before daring to try to set up policies to, to tell the people how they should live. Okay, um, I want to rewind a little bit. Um, we touched on Black Panther before and Wakanda. And I just wanted to ask you, Carolyn, did you go to see the film? Um, what did you think about it? And how was it received in Jamaica, assuming that you saw it in Jamaica? Yes, yes, I went to see it in our first week. And, you know, um, they had various um, events by corporate Jamaica, you know, and then it was opened up for more general release but I think like everywhere else in the black world there was a lot of positivity around it people coming dressed in so-called African clothes I wrote a column in which I suggested that the uninitiated pay attention to where their African clothes were coming from because a lot of these so-called African fabrics are coming from China you know so <laughs> a little note of caution there but I, as I said despite the fact that there was a kind of faddish quality to this affirmation of Africa um, and it's a fictional fantasy kind of Africa there you know you have to say well at least there are people are wearing African clothes now would have never considered doing it Africa is in style so it is good for the fashion designers in Jamaica like you know um, Yaki Koimu Tamba and um Kemet Revisited and, you know, a lot of people who have been selling African clothes to Rasta types. And now they have a market that is bigger than that specialist market because all of a sudden, everybody wants to be black. So it's good. So returning to the dancehall, I wanted to understand a little more about your interest in dancehall within the context of your work on orality and also some of the Pan-Africanist ideas we've been speaking about today. 
Um, so I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, but my understanding is your focus on dance will emerges out of a work on Jama Jamaican language and Jamaican orality more broadly. Um, did your book on dance will come after Noises in the Blood? Yes. Well, no, actually, the second to last, the second to last chapter of Noises in the Blood was was about dance hall, and I, I call it slackness hiding from culture erotic play in the dance hall and I came upon that a, some, a song by Josie Wales you know that I took the, took the title of the chapter from and I saw just sitting down and listening to a whole set of dance hall lyrics that you had this kind of um, confrontation in dance hall where dance hall was seen as slack sexuality violence, negativity, people don't see anything positive in dance hall. And, you know, reggae now had become culture, high culture. And I could still remember the days when reggae was seen in the way that dance hall is seen. Now, reggae was not seen as high culture in its time. You know, it's a Rasta music, nutty head, dirty um, people music. And and, and so I was trying to see, well, what can I draw out of these lyrics that show, what, what, what shows the complexity of dance hall? And that is where I, you know, found Josie Wales' song so compelling, Slackness is Hiding from Culture. And I, how I interpreted that is maybe not exactly how Josie Wales intended it, but Slackness is Hiding from Culture, perhaps because culture wants to embrace slackness. So slackness has to be running away from culture, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, they, and I found this book by these guys, Stalibras and White, um, where they talk about disgust bearing the imprint of desire. Sometimes the very things that we say disgust us are the things that we subconsciously desire. Yeah, so so there's that that dance hall as one of my colleagues, Dr. Donna, Professor Donna Hope says, dance hall is Jamaica's sore foot. So we see it as something to be ashamed of, you know. But it's part of who we are. Yeah, so I think it's right what you say about dance hall being more complex than just, you know, pure slackness. But at the same time, I'm concerned about the balance of the lyrical content in the music. Um, and I'm not alone in that, I don't think. I was watching Queen Africa being interviewed by Dutty Berry the other day, and um, I like the way she put it forward. She was saying that she'd never like to see Spice or Alkaline change who they are completely, but at the same time, she saw a real need for them to balance some of the subject matter in their music so it's not all just sex and violence. Um, she mentioned the violence in particular, and she was saying that in a country which has had over 60 murders in the first 12 days of a year, violence is such a real and present thing in a society that the music really needs to take stock of its influence um, upon people's behavior. Yeah, yeah well, I, well, I think, you know, it's undeniable that the dancehall DJs influence um, society, but they like to say the DJs like to say that they are not 
so much defining what people should do as reflecting what people actually do, you know. So they're, they're saying, um, this is the society we live in and we're writing lyrics that talk about the reality that we see. But um, perhaps the popularity of the rhythms and the, you know, is that thing, I think it's that the, the impact of the rhythms makes the messages even more powerful. I remember taking a dance class at the Edna College of the Visual and Performing Arts, and one of the songs that we were dancing to, the lyrics, the lyrics were so dreadful. Limb by limb, we are gonna cut them. Down. And I said, and I cut your backs, and I said, I am not dancing to this. You know, I protested because yeah, and the thing about it, the rhythm was so sweet. But you have to make a decision that, you know, you cannot be in a culture where glorifying violence in that kind of way as as entertainment so something is something is wrong and even though i have argued that you know some of the violence is verbal it's not to be taken literal it's metaphorical but but still i don't think you want in a society like jamaica where there's so much actual violence to at the same time be picking up verbal violence you know we, we need we need some more positive messages out there yeah i think that's right and for me the artist is supposed to be a creator as well as a reflector or as well as a mirror um i think the argument that artists responsibility is simply to kind of reflect their environment is a weak argument if you're endowed with creative abilities then you have the power as we all do to some extent to create an environment that we'd like to see um if we kind of remain in this paradigm of um, you know, we're a mirror for society, we're reflecting what we see, then we can, we could potentially be going around in circles for a long time, you know, going around this kind of sex violence, sex violence, sex violence triangle, triangle, circle. Um, and, you know, art will reflect that reality and the reality will reflect the art and, you know, on it continues. I think for me, the artist has also has the power to kind of rise above that Absolutely different paradigms you know show alternative ways of thinking and being yes you have these you know the literary people would say you have these tropes you know these recurring motifs kind of thing sex and violence i think i think maybe you know what we have seen with the reggae revival but you know that group you know the chronics is on kabaka pyramid and Janine and um, protege and you know that whole set of young people now who are giving us very positive lyrics they're critical of the society they're making judgments about the society but they're doing it in a way that i think is more positive than just the limb by limb we are going to cut them down kind of thing yeah i agree with that and um I wanted to move to thinking, still about the dancehall, but thinking about the dancehall as an archive of sorts, which is what we'll be doing at the event this Sunday. So if you'll excuse the advertisement, we've got Levels Africa in the Dancehall this Sunday, the 25th of March, and that will be happening 
in um, Rich Mix down in Shoreditch if you're in London. If you're not in London but you can travel, then please travel. There are some people traveling to get there. Um, so, you know, during the course of the day, we'll be having um, a kind of active embodied dance workshop. We'll be screening some films and then we'll be discussing some of the issues that have come up today and others that will arise out of people's presentations. Um, yeah, sorry about the ad, but um, just going back to thinking about this dance hall as somewhere where history is preserved and activated. Like, is that a concept that you would agree with? I mean, can you think, do you think it's possible to touch an intercontinental history in a dance hall space? Well, I mean, things like John Canoe, dances and the music, you know, you see it in the butterflies, that same kind of in and out movement and the of the, the, the hips and the knees, you know, you see certain body moves. I'm not an expert on the dance forms, but I know that certain of these moves get passed down from folk to popular and they're adapted, but it's the same, it, the, the same um, vocabulary but it is being used in new ways. So you have the same, many of the same steps, but they're choreographed differently. And the focus on the pelvis in Jamaican um, folk culture is transmitted into dance hall. One of the differences, as I've pointed out in the folk culture, when the female body is fully clad, it is not seen as vulgar, but in the dance hall, when you end up with the battle rider with the same pelvic movement, then it is seen as different. But it's the same pelvic movement, you know, but it's, it's the, the, the way the body is dressed that determines, or dressed or undressed, that in a way determines whether that movement is seen as folk or vulgar. Carlin Cooper. That was amazing. Um, thank you so much for that insightful um, conversation. It has been a pleasure talking with you both. No respect, no respect for the work that you guys are doing to carry, carry the vision forward. Listeners, you heard it first <laughs> here at Groundings, episode three. Please continue to follow us. Um, on Twitter and Instagram at DE underscore archive. That's at DE underscore archive on both Instagram and Twitter. And also follow us on our website, decolonizingthearchive.com. And for those of the listeners who will be seeing us on the 25th of March at Rich Mix for our levels, Africa in the Dance Hall, you will not be disappointed. Reconnect. And that, the whole idea is for you to embody your own story, not just for us to share these revelations or things that you know already, but for you to imprint them into your own memory, tattoo it onto your own soul case. <laughs> so um, for those of you who can't make it, follow us here again for the next episode of Groundings. And it's always peace and rising up. So thanks again, speak soon and walk good. <laughs>